good morning, Restore. Well, we have had an exciting last few weeks. I mean, first and foremost, go Astros. So I am not a baseball fan in the slightest, um, but I did my best. Okay, this is quite literally the only orange shirt I own, and I do have some bling. Was I forced to wear it because of a bet? Yes, but I'm also wearing it out of selfish love for the people of this church who really care about the Astros. So you're welcome. That's what this is about. I just didn't want anyone to be like, what is she wearing? That's clearly what I'm thinking about up here. Um, So that's what that is. But baseball aside, we have still had um, some really exciting last few weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, we got to celebrate our one year of getting to gather and meet together. Um, Last week, we got to celebrate as we dedicated two more kiddos uh, to the Lord as a body. Woohoo, yes. That makes six now. I think we've now dedicated six kids um, as part of a restore body, just making commitments to them and their families. Um, As Justin mentioned last week, we recently got to meet with the chair of our board, and I loved the way that he put it because I think it so perfectly explains the excitement of these last few weeks. Um, He said, you know, at this point with where y'all are at, you're not just planting a church anymore, like trying to form a church. You are a church. Yes, we did it. We're here. Yay. Yay. It's the excitement I'm talking about. I feel like that was more than the Astros. So good job, guys. Uh, Truly, we are. Like, now that we're kind of shifting a little bit more out of survival mode and really get to stand a little bit more on this uh, confidence that we are a bit more established, what's so exciting about that is now we get to start asking ourselves a little bit bigger of questions. Right? Like, now that we've survived, we've made it, we're here, we really get to start asking, like, who are we as a church? Who are we going to be? What are the things that we're going to value? What are the things that we're going to care about? What is our presence in the community going to look like, going to feel like? And what's actually quite easy about answering a lot of those questions is that Justin has done an impeccable job over the last year of really forming and shaping our ability to answer those questions. Right? Every Sunday as he preaches and, and, and sends out these questions to our small groups where we can unpack further these things like, what is faith? Like, what is grace? What is community and friendship and love? Like, our understanding of those things will serve as the foundation, the core of who we are. Those will be the things that we, in turn, value and begin to share with the community around us. However, there is one more topic that, if you ask me, is just as essential, just as core and foundational to who we are, to who we're going to be, that I don't think we've quite fully covered yet. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks going over that topic. And that topic is justice. Now, right off the bat, I want to acknowledge that probably every single person coming in this morning just had a different picture, a different image flash across their brain when they heard the word justice. Each of us has our own expectation of what that word means, of what it should look like, of what the church's involvement in certain justice initiatives should or should not be. We have all come from different faith backgrounds, different church traditions, different upbringings, all of which implicitly and explicitly have formed and shaped our understanding of, our desire for, our urgency for justice. And so truthfully, over the next three weeks, one of my main goals is really just to get us on the same page. 
to get us to a unified, a right, and honest understanding of what is justice. What do we mean when we say that? What are we talking about when we talk about it? Because church, I really, I truthfully believe if we can come to a unified, right and true understanding of what justice is really all about, that will do far more for us than simply impact what service projects we sign up for. It will do far more for us than determine what community partnerships we end up having. It will do far more than serve us every few election cycles. I truthfully believe a right and true understanding of justice, it changes us. It changes us like at the core of who we are. It affects what we spend our time thinking about. It affects how we live our lives, our day to day. It affects the type of decisions we make and why we make them. It changes our commitments, our sacrifices, and not just financial. Like what we're willing to sacrifice with our time, with our emotional capital. Our understanding of justice is at the heart of all of that. An author you'll probably hear me quote quite a bit throughout this series, who I really love, uh, the work that she's done specifically on uh, the 21st century Americans' relationship, uh, American church's relationship with justice and politics. Her name is Caitlin Schess, and she puts it this way. We are motivated by the people, society, culture, and ultimate values that we have been taught to love. And so that's my second big goal for these next three weeks, is that we would learn to love justice. That we would learn to love it, not because I love it, not because there's people in our body that are politically minded who really love it, but because the God that each of us show up each week, Sunday after Sunday, to come and worship and glorify, to grow in our affection for, to learn more about the God that for so many of us, we have given our heart, our souls, our lives to this God. That God loves justice. And so we're going to spend these next three weeks really digging into, as best we can, understanding more about that God, about his character, his will, his heart, his mission, the story that he has been writing since the beginning of time. And I truly believe at the end of all of that, we will be left with a holistic, healthy, humble, and honest vision for justice that will see us far beyond many of the personal, temporal experiences, expectations, understandings of justice we currently hold. So I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about what this morning specifically is going to look like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a humble task it is to come before you this morning, acknowledging and aware my goal, my mission is to share with our people more about who you are. God, I ask in your mercy and your grace you would honor that request, Lord, that we would grow in our understanding of you this morning, Lord, and with that, grow in our affection for you and the things that you are affectionate for. We pray all of these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ.
Amen. Oh my gosh, it's a miracle. Someone, an angel perhaps, <laughs> fixed my stand. Amazing. All right, so over the next three weeks, our goal is to really develop a love for justice that is first and foremost rooted in God's love and mission for justice. Then for this morning, this week, what I really want us to do, what I want our goal to be, is to begin our journey where God's love and initial mission for justice begins. Unsurprisingly, God's love and initial mission for justice begins in the beginning. Genesis 1-1 opens with the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And through that and the following chapter, we get our first description of God's creation of humanity of all the earth. And if we were to summarize those first two chapters with any one phrase, I think it would be this, and it was good. All creation all that he formed with his hands. It was good. It was pure. It was whole. There had not yet been one regret, mistake, committed. There was not a living creature, not a thing upon the face of the earth that had known what it meant to be without, that had known what it meant to lack. All was right, all was perfectly ordered, all was perfectly, you could say, just. That is how God's story with humanity and creation begins. Now, unfortunately, that story continues, and we bump into Genesis 3. Now, for most of us that have grown up hearing about the events in Genesis 3, otherwise known as the fall, What is typically highlighted for us, what is typically focused on as we hear about the serpent and the forbidden fruit and Adam and Eve is this reality that in this moment we see mankind's first sin, first mistake, first choice to go against their trust in the goodness of God. And as a result of that choice, there's this breaking, this fracturing, this maligning of their once perfect holy union with God. And I want to be clear, that is what happens in Genesis 3. But that is not all that happens. In light of this fall, in light of Adam and Eve's first sin, yes, there is a breaking and a fracturing of that once perfect union with God. That beautifully intimate relationship with him. But what we also see is in light of the fall, in light of their sin, there is a breaking, there is a fracturing of their relationship with everything. This choice, it affects their relationship with God, but it also affects their relationship with each other, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with the works of their hands, their relationship with all creation, all the earth. And so what we see happen in Genesis 3 is, yes, shame and isolation and personal sin enter the picture, but what we also see is hate, exploitation, corruption, injustice enter the picture. 
And so at the end of that, we are left with this need, this yearning for a solution, for possibly a savior who could come and make right again and unify again, yes, mankind's relationship to God, to the God of perfect love and perfect righteousness, but who could also make right again and unify all the earth to the God of perfect order, of perfect justice. We see in light of the fall a need for personal salvation as well as universal restoration to make right again what is now wrong. And that is where God's mission for justice begins. So as we continue on in that story that he is now writing with all creation, with all humanity, as we move on from Genesis 3, what we see is chapter after chapter, story after story, depiction after depiction, showing just how far, just how vast the ramifications of sin will be. We will see the consequences of sin touch every living soul, every living thing. There will not be an inch of this earth that does not feel the havoc of sin. And it is at the height of that destruction, at the height of that total chaos, that the God of all creation breaks in. And he makes a promise to a man. We'll reach Genesis chapter 12 in our story. Well, God, God will make a promise to a man named Abram, who will soon be known as Abraham. And this is what that promise says. We find it in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I think it's easy to come to passages like this and instantly dive into this like VBS lens. And here's what I mean by that. I think for many of us that grew up in the church, that grew up attending VBS, hearing these stories about Abraham and Moses and Noah and Esther and Daniel, we're presented these stories in a way that makes them out to be like the good guys. Right? They're the obedient ones, the ones that do the right thing. And we're kind of taught these stories in a way to want to be like these people, to also do the right thing, to also be obedient in whatever way that we see. And so I think with that type of lens on, when we read a passage like this, it can be really easy to jump to this question of like, wow, who is this Abram? Like how holy and obedient he must have been to earn this blessing from God. But the thing about God is he does not really operate on a VBS lens. He operates through a lens of redemption. Right? He does not base his purpose, his will, his plans upon the morally superior people he's able to find upon the earth. No, he bases his purpose, his plans, his will based upon his ultimate goal to restore all back to perfect wholeness and perfect flourishing. And so at times, yes, 
It seems he, use, he uses seemingly morally upright people to accomplish that task. But what we also see is he has no issue using idolaters, abusers, corrupt nations, even at one point the mouth of a donkey to accomplish that task. And so in light of that reality, when we come to passages like this, more than asking, who is this Abram? How incredible is he to earn this blessing? Our question should be, what is God doing? What is he up to? And how does it fit into his ultimate plan to restore all things? Where does it fit in his mission for justice? Well, I think we get the answer to that question at the end of our passage. God makes this promise to Abram to bless him, to make his name great, to make him into a great nation, to protect him, to be faithful to him, so that the earth will be blessed through him. The whole earth. Every tribe, every nation, all creation, all humanity, that is who God has in mind as he makes this promise to this one individual man. And so what we see here is not only God's first step in initiating his mission for justice, but I think we also see the nature of that mission. God loves to work in us as individuals. He loves to do great and mighty restorative good acts in us and our individual souls. But always is it so that all would also be blessed. Whatever goodness he does in us, whatever goodness he brings about in an individual, it is so that that goodness will be spread to all. Whatever healing, whatever type of restoration he does in us, he does in an individual. He does so that they may bring that healing and restoration to all. God makes this promise of protection, of blessing, of soon coming justice to one so that there may soon be blessing, be protection, be justice for all. And as we move on in our story that God is writing with humanity, we will see that one individual promise begin to expand. It won't quite reach the whole earth yet. We're getting there. This is only week one, guys, okay? But it will begin to expand from one man to a people. You see, God will keep his promise to Abraham, and he will use his line to begin to form the seeds of a nation. Abraham will have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac will have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons, go Jacob. And those 12 will become the patriarchs of what is known as the 12 tribes of a nation called Israel. Right, so generations will pass. Abraham is long gone. Baby making continues. Right? Abraham's line takes very seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply, and multiply they do. And as they multiply, as they expand into what is soon called the sons of Israel, God continues to keep his promise. 
He is faithful to those sons. He continues to bless them, to protect them. He is faithful to them through brotherly betrayal, through imprisonment, through abuses of power and famine. He is faithful to them through generations of Egyptian enslavement. He is faithful to them through God-fearing midwives who refuse a king's directive to have all sons of Israel killed upon birth. He is faithful to one of those sons who is hidden in a wicker basket among the reeds of a Nile. He is faithful as that son is found by none other than the king's daughter herself who will name that son Moses. He is faithful to Moses years later as he speaks to him through a burning bush, commanding him to lead his people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And it is in that wilderness that God will be faithful again, will speak to Moses again, and remind him of the promise he made to his forefather over 400 years prior. He will remind the sons of Israel through Moses of this initial promise and begin to expand on how he intends to fulfill it. Right, so if our promise to Abraham is the the what, this promise of justice for all, we will see here that the promise to Moses is going to be our how. How God intends to bring justice to all. And that promise is found in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. He says to Moses, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be in my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So here's what's happening. God is telling Moses, if you go to the sons of Israel and say, if you follow my commands, if you follow the rules that I am about to give you, the commandments I am about to give you, I will form you into a community, into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, who will be the embodiment of the blessing and justice I intend for the world. I will form and create and shape in you the wholeness and the flourishing I desire for all. And so God's going to give them those commandments. This is the point in our story. We see the Ten Commandments. We see what's often referred to as the Old Testament law. We start to get to those pages of our Bible with all the really weird rules and, and regulations, right? Like there's stuff about goats and sheep and like a lot of blood, There's like a pigeon in there every once in a while, and like we really don't know what's going on. I think at this point in the story is often when we start to lose sight of what God is doing. And so I think it's really easy for us to reach this point of the story and go one of two ways. We either become overly obsessive with these rules and regulations, trying to sift through them with our VBS lens, What here do I have to follow? What here do I have to obey? How do I stay morally upright? How do I stay obedient? How do I stay the good guy? Another way we go is we just kind of trash it. We don't even worry about it. I don't know why the Bible publisher is worrying about using all these pages. Like, we don't need it. It's totally irrelevant. But I think there's a way to avoid either of those extremes. 
And I think how we do it is we remind ourselves, we ask again, what is God doing here? What is he up to? Where does this fit in his plan to restore all? Where does this fit in his mission for justice? And if that's how we view it, we begin to see God is not offering this law, these commandments, in order to build a morally superior people who are going to isolate themselves from the rest of the earth and just wait out their time being super holy and great while the rest of the earth drowns in sin. No. He gives them this law, he gives them these commandments in order to form and shape them into a people of love, into a people of purity, a people of grace, a people of justice, so that they will become a beacon of hope, a light to the nations. They will show all. This is the wholeness and flourishing God intends for all of us. Come and see. What we see in this Old Testament law is rules that protect the marginalized, is regulations that protect women, is commands that ensure the foreigner is welcomed in. We see provision after provision ensuring from the least to the greatest Everyone is able to partake in the mercies and presence of God. And what's so kind of ironic about why we really don't know what to do with a lot of this stuff is that it is so specific. Like, it is so specific to a very individual community's political, economic, social, mental, emotional, spiritual needs. But I'm going to tell you why that's beautiful. That's how deeply our God cares. Like, that is how deeply he cares that all would experience wholeness and flourishing. He leaves no detail out. Anything that could have any impact on any one person's ability to experience restoration, he's going to address it. There are laws in here about making sure to cover the opening to your well so that animals don't fall in and hurt themselves. There are laws in here about how to build your house in case your neighbor is on your roof, ensuring he won't fall off and die. There are laws in here about whatever grapes fall from your vineyard to leave them, allowing an opportunity for the hungry to feed themselves. What we see in this law and these rules and obligations is a God that is deeply concerned, that cares about every rhythm, practice, deed that we do that would affect the blessing and justice for everyone. That is what God is up to here. That's what he's forming. That's what he's shaping. And Israel says, we're in. So they enter this covenant, God's side, God's side of the deal. I will give you blessing, protection. I will give you the laws and the commands. I will show you the way. I will form and shape you into this community. And Israel says, we'll do it. That's their side of the deal. They just got to obey. They just have to walk in it. 
And so just to give you a glimpse of where we are in this story, I know most of us don't have physical Bibles, so I brought mine to really round out this visual. So God will spend this much more time, this chunk of the story, giving those laws and commands. I told you, it's specific. We cover a lot of ground in these pages, okay? He spends this much more time forming and shaping Israel in every way possible to form them into this community of blessing and justice. Israel spends this much time making one thing evidently clear. They cannot keep their end of the bargain. I mean, this entire chunk is just story after story, depiction after depiction, showing us the total failure of Israel to obey and walk in God's commands. We see time after time Israel just become completely engrossed in the nations around them, become completely engrossed in the ways and culture that God specifically formed and called them to be separate from. We see rather than Israel offer themselves to the world as a people of love, of mercy, of goodness, and justice, they become exactly like the world, being driven by greed, selfishness, arrogance, idolatry. Rather than Israel offering themselves to the world as a beacon of hope, as the embodiment of the wholeness and flourishing that God intended for all, God spends this whole chunk of the story offering judge after judge, prophet after prophet, chance after chance, reminding them whose they are and the task they were given to do, drawing them back to repentance, drawing them back to himself, drawing them back to the ways he told them to go. And Israel just cannot get it. But here's the thing about the promises God makes with his people. He makes them knowing full well our capacity for failure. He makes them knowing full well our inability to stay focused and on task. He makes them knowing full well every mistake every wrongdoing, every poor choice that we are capable and that we will make. And yet he makes the promises anyway. And he at no point has any intention of allowing those promises to fail. And so in light of Israel's failure, God's going to make another promise. He's going to make one last covenant. And that one we find in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 34, it says this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. In light of Israel's failure, God makes a new and final covenant. That while new in its means of execution is not new, in its purpose, its mission, or goal. This new covenant has the same purpose that we uncovered all the way back in Genesis. It has the same mission as that initial promise given to Abraham. It has the same goal as the promise given to Moses over a thousand years prior to this. God's mission is restoration. God's mission is justice for all. What is new is no longer will sin and iniquity have the power to deter God's people from being the community of blessing and justice he intends. What is new is that now rather than God's people following commandments etched into stone, they will follow the teachings he will etch into their hearts. What is new is the means in which he will fulfill this promise will be through a means far greater, far more powerful, far wider reaching than Abraham and Moses than any prophet combined. A new covenant is coming, and he will usher in something even greater than Eden. He will usher in something eternal, something that will last forever. He will usher in a kingdom of blessing, of protection, of justice for all. Now, if you want to learn more about that kingdom, more about he will come to bring it, more about what it looks like to follow him, to be part of that kingdom, you got to come back the next two weeks. (laughs) But for this week, what is important, church, is that we understand this is our story. This is the story we belong to. This is the story God has been writing since the beginning of time. It is his story with us as individuals. It is a story for us as a community. Every last work that God has ever done in any individual soul throughout history, any law, any command, any rule he has given to any one community that has walked the face of the earth, it has been for, it has been in service to a greater purpose, a greater mission to make right again all that is wrong. This is God's mission for justice. This is what he loves This is what he has been pursuing, past, present, future. So church, would we learn to love it too? And would we be excited? Would we be eager and expectant to learn what it means for us to pursue it too? I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, What an honor, what a humble honor, to 
to hear of your story, God. To be reminded, Lord, that where we currently exist, who we currently are, what's currently going on in our lives, it is part of such a bigger story. We are part of such a bigger story. God, would you begin to just awaken in our hearts an affection for this story, an excitement for this story, an eagerness to find our place in the midst of it and know what it means to love what you love, to be a part of what you're doing in us, in this church, in this whole world. Lord, would we be a people that loves justice, that seeks it eagerly, because we know that the God that we love loved it first. We pray all of these things in the sweet name, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.